0: forgotten how law actually works, and it's ugly. Okay. I've seen such wonderfully explosive terms on chart. You might as well have stuck a gun in your mouth and pulled the trigger. The only one who has physical vital signs are dead ones.
1: Well, hello, boys and girls. This is Rick Bicotta and Greg Henry on the line. And we have a guest this month. This is the July 2014 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Jennifer Home Dustankas is our MDJD colleague, group health physicians in Seattle. And the reason we're talking to Jennifer is that she has written this excellent article in the June issue of the Annals of Emergency Medicine entitled The Expert Witness in Emergency Medicine. Welcome, all. Gregory and Jennifer, thanks for joining us at this relatively early hour.
0: <laughs> early? It's the middle of the day for me here, Rick. I mean, uh, you know, we've had lunch already, but go ahead. Jennifer, welcome. Appreciate your
1: getting up early here at nine o'clock in the morning to do this with us. This is actually very timely because we have been getting some whining from listeners about the state of expert witnessing. And if I could... I'm just gonna do a one email that I got from Fred Fenton. Fred says, this is a quote, it has always st- stuck in my craw. Where, you know, where's the craw? Yeah, that yeah. Topic, it, you know. Anyway, <laughs> the craw, something gets stuck there that someone so prominent can act with apparently a complete lack of scruples and reasons for money. He was referring to actually a very well-known expert witness from a prominent hospital in Boston Who testified against his friend? His friend prevailed, but he was really upset. We all know this person, and it's being added to the list of those who are, I guess, making others unhappy because they appear to be defending patients against doctors and saying testimony which they think is unfair. Although, Jennifer, if you could take us through your paper, you're going to go through some of these. Difficult issues dealing with expert witnesses. I, I've never seen a paper on this which in such detail went through this topic. Greg, do you have anything to say before Jennifer gets into this?
0: Well, in all fairness, our, our listener who wrote in was a little angry at you and I because we didn't actually list the name of two people who have given some funky testimony. All right, we're happy to say, because this is public record, Whenever you give a deposition or you testify in a case, it is public record. And although, God rest his soul, George Podgorney is a former president of the college. He did give some testimony, which was a little funky. I've appeared against George probably uh, five or six times. And that's certainly an issue as to the quality of the testimony. And then, of course, Peter Rosen has been giving some testimony, which, quite frankly, um, I don't think is particularly scientifically based. But, yeah, those are the two names that we did not mention. But, I mean, we can mention them. It is, it is public record, and I'm sure Jennifer, who's a lawyer, will, will reiterate that, that th- this is public.
1: It is public, but what is not necessarily public is the fact that these people were or were not sanctioned. And so I think that this has not gone through the official ASEP process, uh, I don't think.
0: Not against these two people, no. No, these these people have not been sanctioned by ASEP. Jennifer, what are your thoughts here?
2: So you're right. They have not been officially sanctioned. And in all fairness to all parties, I think that you have to Take the case, look at the facts, look at the testimony and and have several people vet that out and go back and look and see what the standard of care was at the time of the case. Look at the standard that the defending doctor is being held to because it varies from state to state and then make a judgment. So I think that making a judgment now is a little bit premature, although it sounds like there will be a process for that which will take place sometime in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that we're just basically parroting, I think, uh, something that was written up in EP Monthly. Is that not more or less correct regarding uh, one of these cases? I mean, we don't know the facts, but I do know that there was somebody who was super, super upset because this is a case I think was in Georgia where they raised the standard of evidence. And so that if you were, I guess convicted of breaching that standard of evidence that you would be considered to be egregious practice, which automatically would have triggered a review by the medical board, which could theoretically result in some modifications of your license, or you'd have to go to school or something like that, or they'd do something mean to you.
2: So the the Georgia case was actually kind of interesting because, you know, as we struggle to decrease the problems that we're having in the medical legal system in terms of frivolous lawsuits and such, we're trying to change the standard by which the emergency physician will be judged, particularly given the fact that we work in a more difficult environment at times with less information. We're trying to make quick decisions based on what we've got. And so the argument is that the standard should be relaxed a little bit for the emergency physician. So in Georgia rather than having a straight, you know, negligence standard, they changed the standard to one that requires proof by clear and convincing evidence that the physician or healthcare provider showed gross negligence. So they went from a standard of negligence to gross negligence and went from a standard of proving the case by a preponderance of the evidence to clear and convincing evidence. And so this case that people are saying should be brought against this particular expert is because they felt that he took it too far, that he was really looking at the standard of negligence rather than gross negligence. And when you look at what the Supreme Court in Georgia said, gross negligence is the absence of even slight diligence, and slight diligence is defined as that degree of care which every man of common sense, however inattentive he may be, exercises under the same or similar circumstances. So really, it's quite a relaxed standard. And the argument was that this particular expert testified in an unfair way against the defending doctor.
1: And made him liable to a review by the Medical Board of the state of Georgia. Yes, that was kind of the, that's the bad part of it.
0: Well, the tough part of this, Rick, is that as soon as you've committed something called gross negligence, then you trigger other things. One of those is a review of the case, should you still have a license, all these other sorts of things. So initially when we as emergency doctors, the Georgia chapter went into this, they thought this was clear cut, a win, but it can't, it's, it's a double-edged sword. And unfortunately this case shows the other side of that sword.
2: You know, one of the other things that I found interesting about this case was that the defense wanted a summary judgment. And one of the things that people, especially emergency physicians, don't understand is that you can come forward and say, look, this is very clear, you know, that gross negligence was not committed in this case and we should just go straight to, you know, a a summary judgment and dismiss this case. But really it's the trier of fact who has to make that decision. And until they get all of the facts, until they hear both sides, both experts, and they can't really make that decision. A summary judgment is is more appropriate in a case where procedural requirements are not achieved.
1: Gotcha. And I think, go ahead. No, I, yes, I, I understand. Um, because in your paper, you point out that in many states, there are very specific requirements for an expert. And if you bring an expert on board that does not meet these requirements, that that would throw out the case or potentially throw out the case.
2: That's true. And, you know, some states don't require even that an expert give an affidavit before you file your case. But that's not that's not true in Georgia. So in Georgia, you have to have an expert opinion before you can move forward with your case. And so, for example, in this case, If the plaintiff was not able to procure an expert and submit that expert opinion, then that would be a case where they could go for summary judgment. And the case actually would never even go forward.
1: Got you. And before we go much further into this, your co-author was uh, David Sklar. What's the connection between, uh, uh, what is it, New Mexico and Seattle?
2: So I actually did my training in New Mexico. And Dr. Sklara was very interested in all of the medical legal issues and had himself been an expert in several cases and is someone who's very interested as well in tort reform. And so he thought this would be an interesting paper to work on together.
0: I wonder if Dave's listening to this. Because, you know, David, uh, I don't think is originally from New Mexico, but uh, went out there to be chief of the department. And just like you start to look like your dog eventually, David started to look like New Mexico. If you've ever seen him, he, you know, he sort of looks like a Swaro cactus now, doesn't he? Uh, he's, but, but he has been there forever and ever. And we would like to think that the Southwest should not be a heavy medical legal state. I have personally probably done 40 cases in the state of New Mexico. There is a lot of medical legal action there, and I have no idea why. But there's a lot of lawsuits in the state of New Mexico.
1: I think there's only 40 emergency physicians in New Mexico. It's one of uh, now.
0: Yeah, but I'll tell you this. Each one of them has been sued because <laughs> I got to know them personally.
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, the reason I, I, um, I know of David Slarn, I don't know him uh, personally, but I recently did a little project on discharge vital signs. And he did a paper a long time ago looking at discharge vital signs and people who had bad outcomes and noted that a substantial people, subset of people who had bad outcomes had bad discharge vital signs. And uh, actually, these were people who died and said I would, that would be the ultimate bad outcome. Yeah. Yes. And so he did this paper, which was, you know, the the goal of which was to show that discharge vital signs are really quite important in terms of doing them, and acknowledging them on the part of physicians and that they need to be consistent with the diagnosis that, uh, for which the patient is being charged, uh, discharged. But in any case, that's, that's a tangential note on Dr. Sklar's contribution, of which that is just one. You know, one of the things I found interesting in your paper, Jennifer, is that you point out that the uh, experts are, are, in fact, not advocates which is kind of interesting because I think that that is not well embraced in terms of the job of the expert, I think you point out, is to educate the judge and the jury and that they are not necessarily advocates uh, one side or the other. Um, Is that really a practical view of how this really works or is this a technical view of how this should work? I think it's both.
2: I think that the ethical expert witness and the professional expert witness and the fair expert witness of which there are many takes the case reviews the file makes a judgment either way and then gives that opinion to the hiring attorney a lot of attorneys actually they take the case on contingency however a lot of attorneys will go ahead and do a case file review ask for a certain amount of money up front from the would-be plaintiff and then have a professional review done to know that if they should move forward with the case because a case for a plaintiff attorney costs about a hundred thousand dollars on average if you go to trial and that is a huge gamble for that attorney so putting a few thousand dollars up front into whether or not they believe this case is a, a winning case is really important And as the physician who's looking at that case, you know, I I really do believe that there's a role on both sides. When a patient has been injured by malpractice, they absolutely have a right to a physician who will go to bat for them. And that's what we do. We're advocates for our patients. On the other hand, the physician who has met standard of care, or if there's not a clear cut breach in the standard of care, that physician deserves a very vigorous defense and they deserve to go to trial should they choose to do that. So in asking, is this something that is just theoretical or pragmatic, I I really do believe that it is the expert's obligation to give an unbiased opinion of the case. So I know that moving forward, there's a lot of interest, at least within the American College of Emergency Physicians to ensure that those opinions are unbiased. And there's a move towards more regulation from within our college to hold people to that standard. I think it's the right answer.
0: By the way, that's the kindest view of this I've ever heard, Jennifer. <laughs> you and I both know that basically you get tagged early on with the ki- what, what, what kind of reviewer you are. Now, I do have plaintiff's counsels call me to look at cases but basically, it's so they can cover their ass with their own clients and say, well, I've got an opinion. And he says, he, you know, this isn't going anywhere. And I certainly have people on the defense side who call me. And when I tell them bad news, you're in trouble, they go shopping for somebody else. If we ever think that this is a search for truth and beauty, we've forgotten how law actually works. And it's ugly. You know, we can say what we would like it to be. But in truth, this is show business for ugly people, just like medicine. And it's whether they can get 12 people to believe something or not. And you and I both know that.
2: Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, one thing that I'd like to point out is that the attorneys and the the physicians have a role to play in educating the plaintiff. And I want to actually step back for a minute and, and think about someone who's had a really bad outcome. And here's a, a person who really believes that something something bad happened because of the medical system. They really believe that. And when they sometimes, um, and when they bring that to a plaintiff's attorney, they're they're very upset. You know, mom died, Grandma died. You know I had this bad outcome. They really believe that this occurred because of negligence, and they they want to recover from that. And these people are not necessarily sophisticated from a medical standpoint and they need answers. And a lot of times, I, in my experience, when the plaintiff's attorney can get a really, really solid case file review and opinion, it really can put their mind at ease and and help them to move on because it's a very emotional thing.
1: You know, one of the things that you brought up is that, when a physician reviews a record to determine whether they think that there has been a breach of the standard of care, they're really only looking at preliminary documents. It may just be the chart. And there's no depositions that have taken place or other sources of evidence that evolve over time, which may in fact make the preliminary review faulted. And you point out very nicely that there's really very little opportunity in this process to go back and change your mind. And so the issue is you're making a, an initial decision based on relatively limited data, and yet there is all of the discovery that takes place after the decision to go ahead has been made, and uh, which may change the mind of the expert. The other thing is, is that I often thought that It would be very prudent for an attorney to get an opinion regarding these $100,000 decisions that that attorney is going to make by getting more than one physician to review a case. And I'm really kind of surprised that that doesn't happen more often than not. I, I often thought, well, maybe this should be the role of the American College of Emergency Physicians to review Cases, but I don't think that, that they would be considered to be a dispassionate party, and that that is reflected in the fact that most of the cases of supposedly egregious testimony involves cases against physicians, which uh, suggests that this is a, a a bit skewed.
0: Well, the other thing, Rick, is how would you do? It? Would you make that a committee process? I mean, if we think the legal process is slow now, just inject into this an ASEP committee that would have to look at records and then get back with someone. It would be tedious in the extreme and very painful.
2: You know, one of the things that's working in the medical legal system, at least on a limited basis, are the states that are going to these medical review panels that are non-binding but will help in either dismissing the case, dropping the case or settling the case should if the case has merit and those are really just in the bad baby cases which are tend to be very large settlements but i think that it's a direction that we could go that would reduce the variability in outcome
1: but don't don't you think that one of the concerns here is that physicians in general want to support other physicians and that even though that's better than what we have now i think There is the risk that meritorious cases may be not been able to be brought. I think that that may be reflected in the fact that the number of malpractice cases has plummeted. It's not necessarily reflected in people's premiums, but the number of cases has has plummeted, particularly in these states where they've put caps on pain and suffering, where like in California, we've had one forever. And oddly enough, that is uh, being challenged this year in the, uh, I think it's in the November election because we have a initiative process in the state. And if you get 504,000 people to sign something, that's on the ballot. And so one of the things that is included in this is that caps on pain and suffering will be tagged to inflation. And so that since this 250,000 cap has been in place for 25 years... They have calculated that it is now worth 1.2 million dollars, and now that it says these cases may be uh, worth taking, where the uh, where given this cap is substantially elevated. The other thing for Apple Pine Motherhood is that they're mandating drug testing uh, of physicians in the setting of errors, and in fact. The physicians are mandated to report for the drug testing at their hospital and to pay for it, <laughs> just to make it <laughs> more interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just to make a system that doesn't work <laughs> even more cumbersome. Well, there's going to be a huge amount of dollars spent on
1: either side of this. Um, and it's kind of a shame, actually. but. And I'm not supposed to say this, but you know, clearly there are people who have been injured by the system whose cases have not been taken because the two hundred fifty thousand dollar cap just not make does not make it economically worthwhile for attorneys to do this. And this has been covered in the LA Times and other publications here in California where clearly patients have been harmed or their family members have been harmed. But and I, I think I've mentioned this before, there's a case of a Child who had club foot surgery occurred, child died, and nobody will take the case because a dead child is, you know, in terms of lost income, there, you, there is none, and pain and suffering is 250000 And there were a series of them that were listed, which seemed quite meritorious, but were not going to be taken and could not, were not taken by attorneys here in California. You
2: know what? Well, is- Go ahead, Greg.
0: No, I was just going to say, Rick, the answer to that is, let the attorneys do it pro bono if they if they honestly believe the case is uh, meritorious. after all, you and I see patients in the emergency department oh, come on and we're ne- we 're never going to be paid we 're not talking about a hundred thousand dollar
1: case uh, yeah, as
0: all i 'm saying is i don 't want to hear this attorney whining. That, oh, we can't afford to take it. I see people all the time who I know I'm not going to get paid for. Oh, come that's, on. That's not, crap.
1: That, that analogy is not correct.
0: Um, I think that analogy is as good as anything else you can come up with.
2: So, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of as an emergency physician is that we're, we tend to be problem solvers. And, you know, when I look at all of the problems that we're having in the medical legal system, I want to step back and say, all right, what do we have to do with this and what can we change to make it better? And one of the things is I look at the, this may seem like a stretch, but I look at the doctor patient relationship and how it has crumbled. And when we look at who is sued and who isn't, when patients like their doctor, they tend not to sue them, that sort of thing. And I I really do believe that we have a role in this as Physicians who won't testify against other physicians who are negligent or physicians who, you know, won't testify for for a victim of negligence or whatever. When there is bias on our end, and there should never be, just like there's not bias when we treat a patient. I view this as an extension of the practice of medicine, although you don't have to have a medical license in whatever state you're in where you're giving testimony. But I do view it as, a, as an extension of the practice of medicine. And, you know, if you're, if, if you're going to be unbiased when you do your exam and you write your report, then you ought to be unbiased when you look at the case file and, and, and give your review. And if you're not doing that, then you're hurting the entire practice of medicine. You're hurting the doctor-patient relationship. And you're really being unfair to all the parties involved. And you should be held accountable.
1: Although, you know, one of the things that is problematic here is that the amount of money that attorneys are willing to pay for expert opinions is just, for some of us, just too easy to walk away from. You know, you pointed out in your paper that the hourly can go up to $1,000, and I guess there are some cases where that there is no hourly. They There's a flat fee to review a case, which may be in, in the, in, you know, two or $3,000 to review a case. And I've heard of an anti- a t doctor in our area who basically did that and he still got paid it was like he wasn't really interested in doing it so he kept on charging more and more to do it and they kept on paying him to do it so there's this issue about it's easy money for us you know don't nobody should make the claim that this is hard work this is easy easy money for us and i think that the idea it may be that there's an undercurrent and you've pointed it out that you want to please that attorney so that they bring you other cases and so that you may be inclined to say what that attorney is looking for to a certain extent. This is all about testimony that is not exactly kosher. And uh, how can we deal with it? And most of the motivations are in the wrong direction, it seems.
2: And I agree with you, Greg. You had talked earlier about this being a stage. And in The legal arena, the truth is the most persuasive argument. And so those plaintiff's attorneys are going to go after the expert who is the most persuasive and is going to give exactly the language that they want and win the case for them.
1: You know, I find one of the things that is discouraging is when former presidents of ASEP become expert witnesses. And I think that that's happened a lot. In the past, and I think that those who do it start doing a lot of cases because they start throwing around the title of the former president of the American College of Emergency Physicians, which has nothing to do with medical expertise whatsoever. But it's a pretty impressive title for the jury to hear, and implies some level of credibility, which I think the uh, attorney on the other side must work to undo. But, uh, you know, I don't know that you can necessarily undo it all the way. This is the president of 30,000 physician organization. And there's all of these inferences which are incorrect,
0: but I think uh, which occur.
2: How do you handle that, Greg?
0: Well, I think I probably still have the largest series of doing (laughs) expert witness cases in the country and i will mention if they say are you associated with something say yes i've held office they say we the president yes and move on i think it's important that you use it to say that you have some familiarity with practice around the country but you shouldn't use that as medical science expertise because being a medical scientist and being a politician are quite different things and I, I, Rick is right in that, that there are, there are there's a difference between having a knowledge of what standards are around the country and actually knowing the science involved in a case.
1: You know, Jennifer, you uh, list what ACIP has done so far. Since 1998, there were a total of 34 complaints, 14 failed to meet procedural requirements that were not forwarded for review, seven were withdrawn, six were dismissed, and seven resulted in Censure, so that's seven out of thirty-four. One review resulted in the expulsion of a member from the college, and a result in stripping of fellowship status. So, so I think that what you're saying is, of the thirty-four, one person was kicked out. Yes,
2: that's right. But others have been publicly sanctioned, and then others have received just basically a a letter from the college saying cease and desist. <laughs>
0: Yes. by the way, by the way, you can get those cease and desist letters. If you're a defense counsel and you don't query ASEP about a particular person who's serving as an expert, I think you've committed legal malpractice because there's no question that asking those questions in front of a jury actually do make a difference. And the people who've gotten letters of censure. It has seriously damaged their testifying careers.
1: But don't they get to say, yes, the cause censured me because I took a case of a plaintiff and, and, you know, I was their expert and this person needed an expert and I believed in this case and this is a reflection of the fact that the ASA process is a self-serving process focused primarily on cases in which doctors have been attacked by their colleagues. And that's reflected actually in Jennifer's data from the American Association of Neurologists, which between 1992 and 2006, 59 complaints of inappropriate expert witness testimony occurred of these 57 involved plaintiff's experts. And you know, I hate and to
0: 50, admit it. 56 of those, by the way, were against uh, ER docs uh, for not giving TPA, too. So, you know, the, the neurologists are a very particular group.
1: Well, you know, I was going to mention that Hoffman has basically said that this was a risk when ASAP took this on. And if ASAP is any different from the American College of Neurologic Surgeons, the data would suggest that plaintiff's experts are the ones that are attacked in this process and it's not the uh, experts for the physicians. And, and, you know, Jennifer, it would be interesting to know whether that was the case in these 34 complaints. i got to believe, honestly, that most of them were viewed as nasty testimony against physicians.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, who brings these ethical complaints? It's other physicians. And You know, if you're a defending physician and someone is supporting you, it would be unusual for another physician to say, hey, I can't believe that guy defended you. I'm bringing, I want to hold that person accountable. I think that the only way to really open that up would be to allow basically a plaintiff to go to the college and say, hey, I think that that testimony was unethical. I want you to look at it. And that's just not the way the process works right now.
0: Well, but there is a way that can work. And if you are the plaintiff's expert, a member of the college, plaintiff's expert, and if you think that the defense expert has given spurious and egregious testimony, that expert can bring an action against the other expert. All you have to be is a member of the college. Now, you could be on the other side and have heard Absolutely terrible things being said by the defense expert. There is a way for that to happen. And so we, we should not think that there is no way for this to take place.
1: Well, okay. like, the, like the American uh, Associated Neurologic Surgeons, that may be theoretically true. But in all practicality, the, there was only two of the 57 cases that were not related to the defense of a physician expert who was defending a physician. Yeah, but getting,
2: getting, I'm sorry, getting back to our responsibility as as emergency physicians and our responsibility for what's going on in the medical legal system, in in the tort system, we have to really stand back and look and say, well, how can we change this? We're not going to change the plaintiff's attorneys. We're not going to change the state Supreme Court's overturning tort reform we're not going to change any of that what we can change is we can change ourselves and we can police within our own organizations on both sides to make it fair and say look that's not that is that testimony is not above board and i'm reporting you and then you have to have the college actually you have some teeth and sanction people because really what happens and what has happened Often in the past, is there's some egregious testimony? It's brought before the ethics committee, and they feel sorry. They know the person, or they feel sorry for the person. They say, "Yeah, that that was bad, but you know, we'll just we'll we'll just talk to him, slap him on the hand, and, and let this slide." The behavior continues because, like you said, it's so incredibly lucrative. Unless there's truly a penalty for doing wrong, people some people will continue to do it.
1: You know, Jennifer, you bring up that one of the other things that might help this process is the development of more guidelines by professional societies. Greg has pointed out the Michigan case in which they affirmed that guidelines could not be substituted for the opinions of experts, and so that expert testimony will still be the gold standard in, in cases, and guidelines can be, I guess, brought to either defend or attack the care of a physician, but ultimately it's going to be expert testimony. So your thought about developing more guidelines is, is kind of like, I see it in your document, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how that's gonna fit in. What do you think?
2: Well, you know, it's a tough one because sometimes there are conflicting guidelines. As we know, the classic example is TPA. You have the American Heart Association and you've got, you know, the the neurologic association that says this is the standard of care. And we say we're not coming down on one side or the other, whether or not it's standard of care. But in a lot of states, I think there are only 19 states right now that require the expert to be of the same, maybe it was 23 at one point, it keeps changing, but only a handful of states, less than half, require the expert to be of the same specialty as the emergency physician. So let's say you're in a state where the expert doesn't have to be an emergency physician. You didn't give TPA. They bring in a plaintiff's expert who's a neurologist and says, this is very clear. This is the standard of care. You breach the standard of care. Look, these are the national guidelines, and it's not just our society. It's American Heart Association as well. You're kind of hosed. Yeah, So it's it's definitely a double-edged sword, especially when there are conflicts.
1: Right. The uh, ASAP board at its June meeting tackled the issue of the uh, TPA guidelines. I don't know what the result of that is because everybody's sworn to silence until the document explaining their decision is written. But in any case, that is a great example of a policy that could be used substantially against emergency physicians. Most of the lawsuits in that TPA area, my understanding, is that for failure to give. And so if, in fact, the college came up with a standard that said this is the standard of care, I don't even know that they frankly use those words, but de facto it becomes a support for this being the standard of care, especially when added to the American Academy of Neurology and AHA, that it's going to really box physicians in, in terms of affirming that failure to give is going to be a a tough case to win?
2: You know, um, when I joined ASAP in 2005, this was clearly the big issue. And so I decided to write a paper on it. It's actually on the ASAP website. And I talk exactly about that. I talk about loss of chance as being the major problem in TPA because it's impossible to prove. You know, you get someone who's got a, a bad deficit, and they say, "Hey, if you had offered this to me, I'd have a more likely than not chance that I'd have improved from this." And you know, even looking at the statistics, it, this it, the TPA issue is really tough from a medical legal standpoint.
0: Right, but it's not from a statistical standpoint because you're never more likely than not to do better. There's no study that says that.
1: Right, I but mean that's
0: it, what's it,
2: argued it, in court. And they well, I,
0: well, that's because none of them actually have uh, mathematics above addition <laughs> and subtraction. But if you actually look at any of the studies, even the most positive studies show maybe an 11% difference or a 10% difference or a 7% difference. So it's never more likely than not but in great, TPA. Seen, in
2: fact, we've talked about these cases and you've seen these cases. They tend to of be course. pretty successful.
0: Of course, they're tried in front of people who, who, who don't even know how much saliva to drool, number one. And number two, they're, sta- they're stated by people who, you know, wouldn't even know what a slide rule was for anymore. So just understand that if it's a greater than not chance, that sounds to me like 50% kind of thing. That's well, never what's discussed.
2: For the record, I, you're Right. I didn't have a slide rule in school.
0: I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I understand that, but for those of us who did, you know, it, it's uh, you know, we, we took physics in a different era. But
1: it, you, you you did have a pocket protector as well, where you put that thing in there. You know, I, I
0: know. Well, I see Isaac 11, I, Isaac Newton Isaac Newton taught my 101 class, so I mean, you, you remember how long ago that was. Anything else you
1: want to pick apart in this paper? I've written, underlined a bunch of stuff, Jennifer, but I I thought we would let you kind of run with the ball here if there were other things that you'd like to talk about.
2: Well, this is a little off point, but I'm really curious to get your impression on this in terms of other standards and guidelines. One is the the standard for chest pain, and I'm not going to use rule out, but um, risk stratification with treadmill testing. And... You know, I just had a, a long discussion with our hospitalists because it is really difficult to get low risk and even sometimes medium risk patients in for definitive testing, if you want to call it definitive for exer- for stress. <laughs> right. Yeah. So
0: it's interesting <laughs> that you have the definitive test because if you do, tell the rest of us. Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, you know, you know the problem is that the cardiologists have put forward some difficult difficult timelines for our hospitalists to meet and with the 72 hour rule for a low risk chest pain patient you know we are if you don't if you don't do it and the patient has an event before that 72 hours and even if they have an event probably even within 24 hours you're in trouble legally and so i'm just curious what you think about that 72 hour rule for low risk chest pain patients
1: when you say 72-hour rule, you want to clarify that, that this that something has to be done to assess patients more definitively within that time frame?
2: Sure. So with a high-risk chest pain patient, they come into the hospital. They come in, they are monitored, um, you know, oftentimes they'll go to, to cath or uh, they'll be have a nuclear stress test, whatever it is that needs to be done. For the medium risk chest pain patient, they come in for observation. The low risk chest pain patient, the standard right now is that that patient can probably go home if they're reliable, but they have to have an exercise stress test, nuclear stress test, what have you, within 72 hours. The very low risk chest pain patient can go home with 24-hour follow-up with their primary care doctor. That's my understanding of the the guidelines right now for um, chest pain testing.
1: It seems actually that they're rather arbitrary. Uh, I don't know of any study that says 72 hours is defendable one way or the other. I think it's probably the uh, opinion of a panel of cardiologists that this is a, a reasonable time frame. But I haven't seen anything that would defend that. So that, I, that becomes a guideline of the American uh, Heart Association, which I think is fairly challengeable in terms of, you know, just pure data. And you know, so
0: we, we don't even know what tests to do anymore. Well, that's exactly right. There's a, there's a wonderful paper that says, you know, history is sort of questionable. Two EKGs, two sets of enzymes, your chance of dropping dead within the next 60 days are like one in a thousand, there was a, an article in Heart four months ago where this gal wrote, and this is somebody who's looked at all the stuff. She said, probably stress testing ought to go away and never come back because what it really adds to deciding what we're going to do further with a patient is so small. Why are we doing stress testing at all on low-risk patients? I think the cardiologists are just as confused as we are As to what the ideal test is. And, you know, they thought, well, we're going to be able to do CT scans of the heart. No, that tells you about some anatomy. It doesn't tell you anything about their physiology. I don't see where those guidelines are going to help us in court in any way.
2: See, see my argument is that they hurt us. So, of course, it's really a double edged sword. And when we write these, these clinical guidelines, we have to be incredibly
1: careful. Right. And and actually, I think that sometimes guidelines should not be written. Uh, my view of the TPA guidelines in ASEP is that the college members have not asked the college to write any guidelines regarding this topic. And it's interesting when the uh, gefuffle came out about those guidelines, ASEP asked for members to respond to the guidelines, but they asked them to respond in a very narrow way. They asked them to respond to issues regarding evidence one way or the other. And I think that, I think some people did, but I think that the more fundamental issue is, and it's the issue I tried to bring up, but it really, I didn't meet meet the criteria for what they wanted to hear was, the members of the college do not want a Guideline in this area. We don't need it. Those who want to give it can give it. Those who want, don't want to give it and think they can defend it should not be mandated to give it. And that I think that was the fundamental error. And I'm curious. Well, who did precipitate this guideline? Was it you know TPA makers? Was it Merck and Heart Association? Somebody basically said to ASEP, uh, you need to come up with a guideline
0: regarding TPA in stroke. And I don't know that it was the members. It was some of the members who were zealots. It was academic members who were zealots on this issue. That's who asked for this guideline to be printed. By the way, it's interesting that all the specialties have found the same thing. If you look at what the membership is actually doing, and Rick knows this better than I, when they did the Otitis Media Guidelines, what they found out was People in office practice who are seeing the majority of kids in the country, <laughs> half of them didn't even know there was a guideline, and the others didn't follow it. I mean, they really did not follow the specific guidelines. So what is the actual standard of care? Is it what exists in a piece of paper or what people actually do out there for a living? And I think that those are totally different things.
1: You know, that I think that's really true because this year in the course, not that we're talking about advertising our courses, of course. I wouldn't do that, Rick, no. But we did look at the 2013 otitis media guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics that were compared to the 2004. There's a nine-year gap. And the 2013 guidelines had 278 references. This is about an ear infection, for crying out loud, 278 references. And the fact of the matter is that they are extraordinarily complex compared to 2004. 2004 was the first guideline that said, you know, if you're not sure, if it, uh, then, you know, maybe that would be the person to kind of give him a prescription and say if he's not better in a couple of days, you know, you can fill it. But these guidelines... I'm not quite sure whether anybody asked for them either because, yes, there was a study of, of pediatricians. And the fact of the matter is they were, although they conceptually agreed that the guidelines are good, when you actually asked if they used them, they were all over the dartboard. The, the number ranged from zero, I never use it, to 95%, I 95% of the time use it. So it's like even if I don't understand it,
0: which is you can't <laughs> actually
1: understand the two. 2000- well, you know those guidelines were so right. fraught with problems about like when to use augmentin and and what temperature would trigger you to use augmentin versus amoxicillin and high dose amoxicillin versus low dose amoxicillin. It was like they were they were they were such a problem, and you would think that the two thousand and thirteens would have straightened it out. Honest to goodness, the 2013s are fivefold worse than the initial ones. And yes, who asked for them in the first place? Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but don't think we have any opinions about
0: guidelines, Jennifer, because we really don't. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I guess maybe that, I guess guidelines, I, I g- agree with Jennifer, they're really, really, really tough. And there, there are thousands and thousands of guidelines that have been written representing a huge amount of work on the part of physicians in terms of reviewing the literature and trying to come up with them. And many societies have ad- addressed the same issues and come up with different answers. And so I think that this guideline thing, even that is an issue. Hey, listen, you want to move on to a couple of other things that we uh, ought to do with this issue? Um, Absolutely. Let me do a paper from uh, Susan Krieg. She's from Lehigh Valley Hospital in Pennsylvania, big hospital. She has recently gone through the trauma of a two-week trial with a defense verdict and then got sued again a month later. Susan, I think you ought to take a vacation. Yes. Uh, she is hoping...
2: <laughs> That's bad luck.
1: She is hoping to make something positive come of these negative experiences. She says, we are hoping to provide confidential Individual support and assistance in deposition and trial preparation. We are hoping to make a video library of testimony, both good and bad, for people to watch. I encourage them to go to court for a day and see what goes on there, etc. The question: Do we know of any other groups that exist around the country that do this? She is looking from in, for input from others and guidance. For now, we'll be consulting with the local defense attorney regarding maintenance of confidentiality about cases so they don't get hauled into court because others told us too much.
0: I talked to her, by the way, Rick. Um, You know,
1: I got to tell you, Greg, virtually every one of these emails that we get, you send that person back a letter with your phone number saying, let's talk about it, which I got to give you an attaboy for that.
0: Well, thank you. I, uh, she and I had a great conversation. It's the conversation I've had with 20 other people because everybody who sued thinks that they're alone by themselves. There's nobody out there. And, uh, men and women have different responses to this. Men want to kill themselves. Women want to form a support group, but what (laughs) she did, what she did was what, other people have done around the country. And I told her, I gave her the names of some other people we actually made for EMRA, Jillian Schmitz, who's been on this program. And I actually made some, some discs that you can sit down and look at if you've been sued about what's going to happen to you and who you can talk to and what you can say. The one thing I did point out to this young lady was, uh, Your support group should talk about how you feel, not the facts of the case. You never discuss the facts of your case with anyone but your defense team, your attorney, maybe your expert, those sorts of things. But you never talk about the facts. And then I related to her some cases where attorneys had actually asked physicians in deposition, have you spoken to anyone other than your defense people about this case? And then they subpoenaed them uh, for deposition as well. So we have to be just a little bit careful when we do these things. What do you think, Jennifer?
2: I couldn't agree more. This has been a really big issue with the medical legal committee at ASAP this year. A couple of points. One is that you have to be incredibly careful about who you talk with about your case. Anything, any facts of the case are off limits. And so what I would tell Susan is, you got to be really careful about whose conversation is confidential and who isn't. And I can tell you that your colleagues and support groups are not protected. Absolutely not protected. A lot of um, medical defense insurance companies will have people and a team in place to help you. And that is, as long as it's part of the defense team, that's confidential. But really, Really, you can't form a group like this and expect it to be protected. Talking about feelings is great, but it it never stops there. People I know help <laughs> they, they, they can't help it. They say, no, but really just listen. You just, I didn't do anything wrong. Just let li- you, you just, it's a bad idea. Talk with your attorney and limit it to that unless there's a team with the uh, malpractice insurance company that handles these things. And some of them do, and they're very good. The other thing is that, Your work with Jillian has been great. And in fact, Jillian has put together a whole bunch of information really aimed, I think, at residents for this year on medical legal issues. But I think Kevin Clower and a bunch of us, Kevin is leading it, but a bunch of us are putting together some higher level CLE information on all of these topics that will be available for people probably within the next year.
1: Well, you know, I couldn't agree more with uh, both of your responses because Susan specifically said we hope to provide confidential individual support and assistance in deposition and trial preparation. Well, you can't do that um, without being protected as attorney-client privilege kind of thing. And and so I'm afraid we're three for three here on basically – I think where she wants to go is not where she can go. Also, I got, and you know, I looked on, I could not find the, the, the fellow who sent me this. So this is a, somebody from Texas who's got a group there who wanted us to make a list of phrases and words to avoid on a medical, uh, on a chart to help you. Not get into trouble. So I came up with a list, and I think Greg, you may have two. And I don't know whether I gave you a fair trial, Jennifer, giving you. I think I sent this like about at midnight last night. Um, so anyway, we got some, and and I would like to kind of go through this list. I apologize for not being able to identify the sender of this request.
0: In full disclosure, uh, the gentleman who sent you that email and I do have a half-hour phone conversation coming up next week uh, oh, to God. go through it. And so uh, I'm glad that I'm going to get both of your inputs in on this as well. But I've, I've seen over my career such wonderfully explosive terms on charts that it's just incredible. You might as well have stuck a gun in your mouth and pulled the trigger. <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> it's that bad. Why don't
1: you start out then? Did you make
0: a few? Yeah, oh, well, I, I, I made some wonderful ones here. I actually had a chart where the woman was described as a five foot, four inch, 300 pound beached whale. <laughs> uh, and, and the term beached whale was actually used. Now, in general, I think beached whale should be a term reserved for very few people, but it, it leads to the larger question of derogatory comments, drunk. Drunk is a common one where he, he's a, a sixty five year old drunk individual. Well, you know what I wouldn't use that term because everybody in the or even the word fat i've had I've had a guy destri- describe her as a fat woman uh, on a chart. You know somebody on the jury is fat or they've got a family member is fat or they've got a family member who drinks. I think we should be as non-pejorative as possible. If they really do stink and and their clothes are dirty and everything else, you can refer to them as disheveled. That's, that's a descriptive term. To say that they're a slob is a pejorative term. But I, I'm sure you've all seen similar kinds of comments on charts.
2: You know, it's interesting that you say that, Greg. Um, even the word obese, unless it is... Directly related to the patient's condition, I would say even then leave it off as an example that one of our providers dictates his reports, and you know someone will come in for something completely unrelated to their body habitus, and he always describes them as obese or morbidly obese, and the staff has actually taken offense and thinks that this guy has something against people who are overweight and so you know, anything that is even remotely smelling like a judgment about another person should probably be left off the chart.
0: Yeah, my favorite phrase is, they come to us for care, not for judgment. Judgment is the province of the Lord. Oh, God. And, and it, well, oh, God. that's exactly who we're referring to, Rick, and God bless you. But the sort of the bottom line is, I don't care what you think. I just care what you write down or what I've got to go and defend. And so uh, there's really, if you don't have to make people unhappy on the chart, just don't make them unhappy.
1: I, I agree. I think that uh, if a person comes in with a sprained ankle or something like that, their weight may have really nothing to do with it. And for you to single it out as you suggest that um, you have some issues with that, I think it just kind of sounds to the jury that uh, you've made some statement regarding this person that is not related to the reason that they came there. And why did you do that doctor? I get, uh, Greg, give, give us a, f- a few more there.
0: All right. I'm going to give you a term that I never know what to do with. And they say he's acting catatonic. <laughs> now I, I, I have no idea what that is. If you think they have altered mental status if you think it's from a psychological reason, you can say, here's the following anato- or neurologic testing done, you know, inconsistent testing, something like that. But to refer to somebody as a catatonic, I've never seen that result in anything good. I actually had a case came into me four days ago where they said, woman acting crazy, uh, yelling, screaming, disoriented, then catatonic. Well, come to find out she had herpes encephalitis, went on, bled in her head, and died. You can imagine how popular (laughs) some of those terms are going to be when the guy said, uh, well, let's give her some Haldol and watch her for a few hours. Not useful in the defense of this case.
2: And, you know, you bring up a great point, Greg, and that is that psychiatric illnesses and diagnoses are by exclusion. And before you start labeling someone, you've got to rule out a medical cause first,
0: always. And we've all done it. Jennifer, we've all done it at some point in our career. And you know what? I look back. I'm sorry every time I did it. I did it as a young doctor, not as an older doctor. Why? Because I'd made my mistakes. I think sometimes it's okay to say, we're not sure at this moment in time. But most people don't die of a psychiatric condition. We ought to be very careful making that the primary diagnosis on the chart. We we presented a series of papers this year in the course, which actually said that if a patient came in with a with a known psychiatric diagnosis, the care they got for their medical complaints were worse. They got less vital signs they got less examination, they got less medication when they went home, they had longer time till they got follow-up. You know, we don't treat psych patients as if they had real medical conditions. We just don't.
1: Yeah, and I think, obviously, it's a really, really big trap because that paper that you're referring to is really very discouraging, but I think that it, uh, we would all kind of intuit that the results are were predictable. I've got a couple here Um you know, I certainly don't like the, the term rule out on the diagnosis line. I mean, well, you haven't ruled it out, so why would you put that term there kind of thing? I don't like um, vital signs stable. You know, zero, the only one, zero, zero is stable. You know? Yes, the only one who has stable vital
0: signs are dead ones.
1: I mean— I think they could be bad and not changing and that's stable. And I also like uh, I don't like the phrase no acute distress. What the heck does that mean? No acute distress. I think everybody uses that term. It's like well, is that like no chronic distress or no distress or it's like it doesn't mean anything to me and I think that it is not very descriptive. I don't like blood alcohol, you know, and a number. I don't like that. I don't like I don't like cranial nerves normal or neuro, I don't like neurologic exam normal. I think that that is generally a lie. Uh, I think the neurologic examination, when it is indicated, requires some statement about what you specifically did, and uh, because otherwise you could you could say something like the person's examination was normal. It's way too important to just say. That phrase, I I think uh, that phrase is very easily discredited.
0: Yes, and and, and believe me, when I play with a residence, and I've got a couple of residencies coming up in the next few weeks, uh, all I've got to do is pull someone up, read from their chart where it says cranial nerves 2 through 12 intact, and then I ask them, what are the four divisions of the seventh cranial nerve, and then they know they're in deep trouble. By the way, I've seen that done to doctors in court, You'd be amazed at how effective that is in front of a jury.
2: So I just reviewed a case where the neuro exam was in question and it was, they did exactly what you just described, Rick. They said, you know, neuro exam, normal, cranial nerves intact. And unfortunately it was a T-sheet and in part it was a really poorly written T-sheet where for example, on the abdominal exam, you know, no bruise, you know, normal bowel tones, no tenderness. But there was not the same level of detail in the neuro exam, just said normal. And yes. when you look at that, you can say, you know what, I can look at that chart and say that was probably not done. You checked a box. And especially on a neuro exam, you've got to be very detailed about exactly what you did. Did you test their gait? Did you test their reflexes? Did you test the, the cranial nerves? Do you know which cranial nerves you're testing? I mean, you, you better have answers for that.
1: Unfortunately, the electronic medical records allow you to create uh, records larger than life by having the ability to do macros. So there you just go to the opposite extreme where you do this extraordinary neuro exam. At least that's what's documented and you didn't do that either. So, electronic,
0: um, we call those electronic lying, Ricky. That's electronic lying.
1: We're coming on to a minute, uh, an hour and 15 minutes, which is uh, our limit here. So, Jennifer, I want to thank you for participating in this. I thought your article was, I've never seen an article regarding the expert witnesses. I think that all of you who are interested in this topic at all really need to read Jennifer's article. It's in the June issue of uh, the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And Gregory, do you have some wine that you would like to pimp this month?
0: Yes, I do, as a matter of fact, Rick. And this is a shout-out to uh, Rashid and Rolla Badora, who had Jerry and I and a few people from the course out to dinner. He is a connoisseur and opened up a Grand Cours class wine for dinner. It was lovely. But, I, I mean, it, it's to die for, but you got to bring a lot of money for that. So I'm going to give you one. It's the warm days of summer, and there's one right now, which I don't know how I missed this in the past, but it's by 14 Hands, which is in Washington State. They do a blended white wine, and I know you're going to hate the name. It's called Hot to Trot, but, they, <laughs> but they, they brought this out. They poured me a glass, didn't let me see the bottle, said, what do you think? I said, this isn't, this isn't bad. They turn the bottle around. You get this for 12 bucks a bottle, 14 hands, Washington state, hot to trot on a well-cooled on a warm summer day. This is good stuff. And in honor of the fact that Jennifer is here, who is in Washington state, I thought I would feature a Washington state wine. Thank you, Gregory.
1: You're just uh, such a bon vivant. I can tell you. (laughs) And, Jennifer, I take it you've never had hot to trot?
2: Um, I've actually had hot to trot. Oh. <laughs> and, um, and other 14 hands wines, which are all great.
1: Okay, Bye. guys, that's the uh, July issue, 2014, Risk Management Monthly. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye.